1: Good day, greetings, hello. It's Art at the End of the World, the podcast that features artists, entertainers, and cultural leaders speaking about what it is to make art here at the end. And my name is Mark Wigmore. Welcome to another Remix episode, a repackaged broadcast from our first season. And my goodness, how the world has changed from just a year ago. The politics, the culture, Apparently, we're not allowed to travel anywhere anymore. Um, But I feel fine. Hopefully, you do as well. (laughs) Uh, We're here, presented by the New Classical FM. Thank you very much to that wonderful organization. Uh, The Zoomer Podcast Network distributes the Art at the End of the World podcast. Thank you to everybody involved. Thank you to uh, all the helpers. Today on the podcast, uh, an old friend of mine colleague and really a mentor to me, the legendary broadcaster and artist himself, John Donabey is here. And if you love history and music history, you are in for a treat. We put a lot of time into constructing this particular episode. We've interspersed all the music that John talks about within the conversation. So I think you're going to get a real kick out of it. Very colorful and just really fun to listen to. Art at the End of the World, supported by Red Eye Media, an innovator in arts communications and media relations for the last 15 years, working with lead film, television, and performing arts organizations to build audiences and their impact through engaged, passionate, and strategic communications. Those organizations include Canadian Stage, Crow's Theatre... The Musical Stage Company, Pacific Northwest Pictures, Summer Works Performance Festival, and the Toronto Dance Theatre. I've worked with Red Eye for many years. For more information about the power of this company, redeyemedia.ca. Art at the End of the World also brought to you by Crow's Theatre. As mentioned, one of this country's most acclaimed arts organizations and based in Toronto's vibrant East End community, they make it so. Crows creates unforgettable theater that examines and illuminates the pivotal narratives of our times. CrowsTheater.com for info and tickets. Go and enjoy a show at Crows, at Carlaw, and Dundas. And I believe the Toronto Sketch Fest is happening there right now, so you can catch some uh, great shows right through this weekend. All right, so John Donaby, I just talked to him on the phone. A great guy to talk to whenever you have to do some investigating on folk music or blues music or bluegrass or rock and roll or R&B and he was actually helping me prepare for the upcoming episode that's happening in just about a week and a half with Gordon Lightfoot and uh, what a talent John is just a, an encyclopedia of information a legend in the broadcast world throughout Canada certainly here in Ontario and Toronto he's been at it for a very long time in fact In 2013, he was an inductee to the Canadian Broadcast Industry Hall of Fame, deservingly so. I was part of the little video that uh, they put together for him for that uh, event. John got his start in 1965 in Oshawa and then to Toronto. He's had a a deep affection not only for rock and roll, but for roots and soul and R&B, folk, blues, bluegrass, all kinds of music. And we had a lot to relate to way back in the early 2000s when we started working together. And uh, I think that was a big part of why we got along so well. He doesn't take meeting his heroes lightly either. He works very hard, studies hard, produces uh, some of the best interviews that have really ever happened with names like Ella Fitzgerald, Tony Bennett, Julie Andrews, Tom Wolfe, the band, all the members of the band, Mel Brooks, Brian Wilson, uh, John Lennon. That's just the tip of the iceberg. John's been the voice of many, many radio stations. He's been on television with uh, different networks, including the CBC. He started a really long stint with News Talk 1010 CFRB. That's where we met back in uh, 99, 2000. And I was lucky enough to work on John's number one rated morning show, I was the producer there for six years, and I can't even start to explain how important and how informative and how energizing this experience was. We had a lot of wiggle room to play with, (laughs) unless they caught us, which they did sometimes. We played a lot of music, Uh, interviews with the best and brightest from the arts world, and for me, really a music education. And we had legends of the blues and roots and... All the different types of music I just mentioned, really, it was outstanding. It really was. We had a lot of fun. Uh, I remember having Levon Hellman and Robbie Robertson and Julie Andrews, Gordon Lightfoot, for that matter. Tony Bennett, Colm Wilkinson, the great, uh, I guess he would say, folk pop singer, but also Phantom of the Opera for many years. Danny Doherty from the Mamas and the Papas, Mel Brooks, Eric Idle. It was just great. I didn't know it then, but... Like I say, it was one of the most important stages of my career, and I do what I do today because I was inspired by this man and his voice and his knowledge and his broadcast ability. So this is it. Legendary broadcaster John Donaby, and for the record, I do think that there is a certain artistry in being a broadcaster and what you can uh, get out of your interviewees and what you can bring to the table. We discuss it within this conversation John always has the ability to move through a talk, through an interview with grace and authority. This man is an artist of this business. So from John's kitchen table at his home in Scarborough, Ontario, this is our conversation on Art at the End of the World Remix. Oh, well, um, let me make sure. I'm... So great to see you, though. Good to see you. too, We're here.
0: I can't. We're believe here. It. We're doing it. We're doing it. You know. <laughs> you know, Mark. You know that voice. You know, Mark. Start out. Just a kid. <laughs> I was born in Victoria. Just a kid. Just way a back.
1: Kid. Way back when. It's coming on twenty years.
0: Okay, help me out. What year did we start together? Two thousand. Two thousand. Yeah. I think you took a break. Yeah, and, and Maury the, came after you. I think, and then you needed a.
1: Maury was doing it, and then you—you you were given a, a roster of people to choose from, and for whatever reason, you were like that guy. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, it was the best. I think it was six years we were together. Six. Yeah. Yeah. Best six years of my life.
1: Come on now.
0: No, I'm not kidding. It was good fun. It was it, good. It, fun. It was so many great memories. It it for me, the fact that you would pick people on my birthday, like it was—it was so intuitive. Right. You know, from Dougie, Doug Riley, on his. I've got all those things upstairs, right? Yeah. Calm. <laughs> Can I touch your guitar, called No. <laughs> what he had a beautiful Martin or
1: something. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think of something. Calm Wilkinson. Calm Wilkinson. Yeah. yeah. I want to share a memory, which is 2001. 9/11 happens. I get a call from you. Early in the morning, because you're, you're seeing what's happening, and of course I'm watching on CNN, and it's terrible, and I phoned my parents, and uh, I remember it was a very strange day, and it was very hectic around the radio station, but you and I didn't have to be on the air for no. another, what, three four days, so right. you had a little time to think about what you wanted to play musically, That morning, that first morning we were going to be back, which was a Saturday morning. And uh, number one rated uh, show, weekend show, John Donabee. And uh, only a musicologist like you would have picked Paul Simon, American Tune, to open up that Saturday morning. And I'll never forget listening to that song at six in the morning. And I think we played the whole thing. Right. Memory. It It just sticks in my mind.
0: And I dreamed I was dying. Dreamed that my soul rose unexpectedly, and looking back down at me, I smiled reassuringly. And I dreamed I was flying, and
1: high up above, my eyes could clearly
0: see the Statue of Liberty sailing away to sea and I dreamed I was flying. Just kind of spoke for uh, the times and and what happened. I just I just felt that was just the perfect song yeah. to play and uh, lyrically yeah. it oh
1: yeah it had so much to say. I mean Absolutely. watching the statue of liberty float out to sea and yeah you know, all that beautiful it sticks a lot to of me. imagery. I don't know about you but if I mean maybe it's a little cliche to say but it does feel like after that day you know and right up until where we are now with everything that's going on that was sort of the beginning of something that we've just kind of lived in ever since.
0: Oh well, I would I would tend to agree with you. It, yeah. and, uh, you know I hadn't thought of it that way. But uh no that was the beginning and we've been we've been doing this dance now and now the last two years i'm excited i want to get off the dance floor yeah (laughs) you know uh yeah it's been a rough couple of years um politically uh, south of the border it's been a little rough here too for that matter but uh no i think you're absolutely right mark um that was probably the beginning right there do you do
1: when you think about your generation and a lot of the people that well, it was a long time ago, Mark. <laughs> well, right, you're you're a you know classic boomer, right in that. I'm a boomer, right absolutely. In that pocket, right in the pocket, and and you spoke to so many people who we now you know they're myths, pretty much. They're legends. Oh yeah, know? and you lived through that time where people really were wanting to change civilization. You know, of of the way we could do things as a species. I mean, what do you think now, reflecting back on that? I know you know Hunter s. Thompson had some incredible things to say about the the tide coming up, and you could see the the high water mark as it receded back down to the to the ocean but I don't know where where you what you feel about speaking to so many incredible people like you did yeah
0: well, <clears throat> a couple of uh, a couple of uh, things that have happened, my wife and I sat there when uh, after The school shooting, I think in Texas. Uh And all those students banded together, and they brought everybody to Washington, Yeah, you know? And And I thought, my God. It's like the 60s again, Uh because I felt that a lot of youth were very apathetic for about 20 years or so. And suddenly these people got together, and I watched them, and I thought this was an exciting time to be living in now, because it did take me back to things like in 1968 at the Democratic Convention and, and all the things that went down. and uh, Friends have told me that was the wildest that was That was the wildest 68. I was on the air doing the all-night show at CKFH. For those who don't know what that is, it doesn't exist anymore, but the FH stood for Foster Hewitt. Yeah. And it was right <laughs> on the corner of Granville and Young. Yeah. And I was on the air for the death of Otis Redding, the death of uh, Robert Kennedy, uh, the death of Martin Luther King, and each night—I mean, this—this this would go on at one or two o'clock in the morning, and the phone calls that we took, or I took, because there's nobody else in the building, mm-hmm. uh, blew my blew my mind, you know. Sitting in the morning sun, I'll be sitting when the
1: evening comes, watching the ships
0: rolling. in. Then I roll away again. yeah it was interesting uh, when when Otis died um, I'm going to use the word black now you have to say uh, African American, but then, as James Brown once told me yeah. after a concert john i'm black i'm proud don't don't be afraid to use the word right, but the women that called me that night crying and crying, and the same with Martin Luther King. And Bobby Kennedy, people calling me saying, the world's going to end, the world's going to end. And it was it was kind of tough to take. You're on the air. You're trying to entertain. But there were these horrid things going on in the real world. Yeah. And you had to get through until, you know, six o'clock in the morning. Do you ever see Otis? No. Perform? Never got to see him. People talk to say it was like the greatest thing you could see. I was to emcee his show at Massey Hall yeah. in December because... I was doing an all-night R&B show, so I worked with Wilson Pickett, I worked with Joe Tex, I worked with Sam and Dave, I worked with all of that R&B crowd, and then I thought, oh, Otis is coming, and then he went down on the plane, and that that was just a terrible, terrible thing, because I have three or four DVDs here of him performing with Booker T and the MGs, there's nothing else like it. Yeah. I mean, I think it
1: was uh, uh, the famous promoter from San Francisco, Bill Graham. Bill Graham. uh, Who, in his book, which is a great oral history of, of that time, I mean, he just... He
0: can't seem to say enough about Otis, and that when he said he was very much the Black Elvis. I just yeah. finished a book by John Simon, who produced music from Big Pink and the Brown album, yeah, uh, along with Cheap Thrills by Janis Joplin and Leonard Cohen's first album, Marshall McLuhan's album, et cetera, et cetera. And he fully admits, I, I, I got to give him credit. He said, "So I'm, I'm told by Albert Grossman, I'm going to the Monterey Pop Festival to see Janis because he was interested in her." And there's this guy, Otis Redding. Never heard of him. Wow. He had never heard of him. He was from the Northeast, and he didn't run in those circles. But once he saw Otis once, he said uh, he became a believer.
1: Interestingly, Janice, I think, and Otis both have their biggest hit. Right after they passed yeah. away by the dock of the bay, yeah, and me and Bobby McGee, so, yeah, yeah. Let, let's go back. You're raised in near Oshawa, is that right? Or
0: it's called Curtis. Yeah. It, it, it's just east of Oshawa. There's the town line, and we're the next concession over, right? And I'm on Varco's Road in a house that my father built. Uh, you know, Dad was handy. Dad was handy. Yeah. John can't even hammer a nail. Yeah. And, I find and,
1: it goes generation. I think
0: he like was that. a little. I remember once, was, he was a printer, you know. Uh-huh. And, and he wanted me terribly to be a printer. He right. didn't want me to be in a radio. And one day when I got interested in computers, I said, hey, Dad, guess what? I'm not a printer, but I really know fonts. <laughs> and he went, <laughs> what? <laughs> well, you know those little wooden things that you use on the press? Right. He was impressed with that. He liked fonts. He liked, yeah. Once he understood what I was talking about. And mom, what did did mom get up to? She was a a stay-at-home mom. Right. And she was there forever, it seems. And then one day, uh, they needed to make extra money because we weren't poor, but uh, we weren't that well off, and my father didn't make a lot of money. So mom went to my high school, and she runs the cafeteria. I still, I'm in an Oshawa group on Facebook, and they still write me notes. Your mom was so great; she gave me an extra piece of pie, right? You know, and all that stuff. But they was, really, was that
1: awkward for you to have mom at the cafeteria? Yeah, yeah it
0: was. I made sure that I, uh, I stayed in another section of the cafeteria. Right. I had a little gang, and we'd sit there with a the transistor radio, sitting at the table, listening to artists that later. I would actually interview right. or meet. I've sort of had
1: that experience too. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm
0: sure you have. Yeah, you know, and it's uh, bizarre. It's really bizarre. Yeah, and you hope to God that they're as nice as you hope they are. I don't know about you. I've had an experience with a couple of artists, and I was really disappointed. Sure. they weren't the nicest people in the world. No, and then there are others who were, you know, went way above my expectations. And uh, I love the interview, and I love meeting with not necessarily just music artists, but, you know, authors and uh, playwrights and people like that. I mean, I've been reading you Uh uh, because I lost a little track. And I'm sitting there, it's 200 interviews. What? Yeah. You know, and I can't believe what you've accomplished because let me just put it this way. I knew you as my producer and you were the best. But I didn't know you on the other side, yeah. just a little bit. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at it and I'm going, "My boy has done good." <laughs> no, I, you know, seriously, you, you've really escalated. Well, your it career. all it all starts with with you, Johnny. And of well, course, thank you. I want to get to. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Are, are you
1: are you the only child in that family? Or
0: oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I was the only child, and everybody else had two or more. I was raised on a rural road. Uh, The only friend I had in life was my dog, Beige. uh, Beige? Beige. That was his color. Uh, I was adopted when I was three weeks old. Right. Beige was adopted when I was four weeks old. Okay. So we kind of hung out together. We had, my dad bought five acres of land. So we had a big woods to play in. We had a creek. And the reason I had no other friends is because there was no youth On that street at all. Then finally, a couple moved in. Then I met a guy over on the town line, and then I started to uh, assemble my peeps, you know. bit lonely at the beginning. Yeah, but you know what? I never felt lonely. Yeah. I'd go down to the woods, and in the spring, the creek would rise, or the crick would rise. My mother would give me hell, and she said, the next time, you go down there. Because she was afraid I'd drown, which I could have. Of course. I'm going to take the switch to you. And they never touched me. Right. And, you know, anybody who doesn't know what a switch is, it's a piece of long wood in the garden. Uh, kind of like a little whip, hard whip. You were getting in trouble with beige. Yeah, beige and I were, yeah. And, and, and I come back one day and I, where you been? I've been, uh, I've been down uh, in the creek. And Stan, the milkman, was coming in because we had home delivery of milk. Right, of course. So and did I. Stan, what do you think we should do? Yeah. I would give him the switch, Jermaine. <laughs> I'd give him the switch. <laughs> Lousy milkman. So he hit. She she slapped me on the legs a few times and sent me to bed. Next thing I knew, I woke up in the evening and my father was home. And I thought, this I'm is, d- this, is th- it. this is it. Yeah. He said, "I think you've suffered enough today." You know, so we sat down and we talked. And
1: our milkman you know. was named Robert, and he drove the big milk truck. Yeah, and he yeah. and you remember my parents' uh, driveway? It was pretty very long, well, pretty yes. long. And so uh, he would, you know, take a break in the afternoons. And just park in our little roundabout and just sit there for like an hour doing his paperwork. And, of course, you know, you can imagine as I've got older the hilarity of the jokes <laughs> and Robert the Milkman yeah. hanging around while my dad's at work. You know, but, uh, My mom claims, you know. Nothing happened. Nothing happened with Robert. He was a nice guy. <laughs> well, oh, um, that's good. So when does radio happen? I have to imagine right away it was,
0: it was sort of a, as much of a friend as Beige was. Four or five years old. Uh, my parents first of all were early risers. They were up at 5 every day Monday through Friday or 5:30. And uh it it's was nice
1: it gives you a little time before you actually get up. Yeah, to and work in the faster.
0: winter time, you know, it's 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 really dark. Uh-huh. And I'd be upstairs and I and this radio that you see over here, that Westinghouse radio was on the kitchen table. And my father was a CKEY fanatic. So I would come downstairs and make it just in time Morning man, Stu Kenny, to yell the words "Wake up, Ontario," right. and I'd sit there. He'd have his porridge. I'd have whatever I had, and I just studied that little box. And then time went on uh, because the music we're listening to, of course, is my parents' music. So is that is that forties music? Is that swing? Oh yeah, forties and fifties. Rosemary Clooney, Tony Bennett, which, quite frankly, now that I'm older. I mean, I love all I that love music. It. I love
1: it, too. I mean, my dad used to listen to Sentimental Journey
0: on c and I loved it. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I like the music. Mm-hmm. And then, quite frankly, I f- have to flash ahead a bit more. When he realized I really love that Westinghouse radio, it's a 40s radio, and he gave it to me. So I took it upstairs. Sweet. It was behind my head in the bedroom, and there's a knob on that that uh, got shortwave. Okay. And I'd think I had Spain. Well, it turned out to be a Latino station in New York, right? You know, stuff like
1: that. I think anybody who's played around with short wave yeah. has had that experience where you think you're going across the world, but you're actually just <laughs> you're just down in the
0: tri-state region or something. You know? But I'm old enough that I just hit the very final, and I mean final radio drama period. So I'd be there at night listening to the Lone Ranger and listening to this, and all of a sudden, ten fifty, chum. Uh, changes their format. They go rock and roll. And I'm listening to 1050 Chum. Then I go over to CKEY and there's Duff Roman and Big G Walters and all of these people. These radio people, to me, were bigger than life. They were as big as any rock star, if not bigger. Right. And of course, the big one for me was listening to WKBW in Buffalo and listening to Tommy Shannon Show, KB Radio. That became a instrumental hit. Because
1: when I... Wild weekend. When we think about the crossover out of Detroit and Buffalo and places like that, I mean, you, I guess CanCon rules don't go into... Not that period. They're not in that period. Not until
0: 70 or 71. But
1: for some reason, the, the U.S. stations are still... A little ahead of the game, would you say, as far as what they're
0: doing? And or, oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I you're, mean, you're digging it more than what's available. Yeah, yeah. so you know, because I, I forgot to mention Wufo W U F O, which is still there apparently. Yeah, but they were stone cold rhythm and blues. No, but I, I I want I knew then that I think I'd like to do this for a living. Uh, although I was really young, one day the C K L B that's in Oshawa. The remote trailer came to the corner of our street at the highway, Mm -hmm. and they were doing a remote. I ran up there, watching this thing. I was just mesmerized, and then they started throwing forty fives. Throwing the crowd literally, (laughs) (laughs) take your neck off. No kidding. But I got a British forty five thrown at me by uh, Joe Brubber and the Brubbers. so I was going to ask. At this point, it's a lot of you're talking radio and shortwave. Are records around the house? Oh yes. Or, yeah. Okay. My parents, to, to augment uh, money, we had a boarder, and his name was Ted McDonald, and uh, Ted had the, what would become my bedroom, and Ted would call me John. Get in here. Get in here. And he had a turntable in his room, and he brought home a '78, of Heartbreak Hotel by Elvis Presley and Love Me Tender, and he'd play me these records, and I'd just sit there. And I was so blown away by them. And uh, one day... Do you have any idea what Elvis looks like at that point? At that point? Yeah. No. You're just hearing the music. I'm just hearing the music. Wow. You know, because we didn't have a television set, for starters, until we got the old Admiral 21-inch. No, it was just the voice. And uh, I really liked what I heard. Then he'd bring other things home. They were all 78s, though. Right. No 45s yet. And one day I'm outside, it's a Saturday morning, and I'm hearing Heartbreak Hotel from like a quarter of a mile away. What's going on? I walk all the way up to the corner and across the street, a new service station is opening and they've got loudspeakers. And I just stood there. Uh, It's the only thing I have in common with uh, Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) He says Heartbreak Hotel was the one that was his first love. And it blew me away, and I started to get involved more and more. And uh, I would go downtown. It's still there today on Simcoe Street North to Wilson and Lee Music. And Bill Wilson, who was standing there then when I was like nine or ten, he's still standing there today. And I started buying forty fives. First forty five I ever bought was by the Diamonds, and it wasn't Little Darlin'. It was She Say Ah Oom um, Dooby, you know. <laughs> The second 45 I bought was Personality by Lloyd Price. But I started buying a lot of 45s. Was it
1: as much about collecting as it was the music itself? I, I know sometimes oh, with, yeah. with comic books when I was a kid, oh, I saw your comic book on your site. Like I, I was just as interested in just getting the comic books as I was in actually reading them. And I don't know if you've had the same relationship. <laughs> you you with know, records. you're
0: collecting too much when uh, <laughs> all and I'll be in New Orleans or Memphis or wherever, and I will go, Aula, look at that! It's only fifty, but forty bucks. I gotta have it. I gotta have it. It's gotta be in my collection. Gotta have it. Right. I buy it. I get home, everything's alphabetical upstairs, and I go, oh, I already <laughs> own it. Whoops. Whoops. <laughs> uh, yeah. I we've,
1: ser- we've all gone through that, though, where we look in our record collection and realize we have, uh, you know, three magical mystery tour, you know, LPs. <laughs> I,
0: I have three or four blonde-on-blondes in yeah, there and, yeah. and, and different things. Yeah. But you were you were loving it, and it just became—I'm sure—it became an obsession. It just became an absolute obsession, yeah. uh, and this is the way it worked. Forty uh, fives were sixty-six cents each. Okay. So my mother would give me a dollar a week allowance, and I'd get on the bus, which was a dime, go downtown, walk up to Wilson and Lee, buy a forty-five, and away I went. Well, then they went up to ninety-nine cents. I'm still only getting a dollar a week. Right. And I'm going, oh, with tax, that's a dollar one. I still don't have any money for uh, the bus. So I went to my mother, and I said, do you think I could have a raise? And, <laughs> First raise you ever and, asked for. Yeah. <laughs> but she gave it to me, yeah, right. unlike others. So I continued. And then all of a sudden, you discover the LP. This is different for me. I'm only buying $45. Interesting
1: I, that, that a single today isn't that much more expensive than what you were paying
0: yeah (laughs) probably yeah you know yeah
1: so the lp comes along and suddenly you're looking at what 12 songs
0: 12 songs and i'm going to admit to you and i i I think i've only admitted it to one other person in my life what was it that i bought my very first album must have been great no it was the greatest hits of fabian Oh, well, my, I think mine was Michael Jackson Thriller. Oh yeah, well yeah. oh, I mean that that, but that's something. Yeah, I got Fabian. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the other biggest remembrance, Bill Wilson. Nice. Don't talk about it because you remember your face, John. Yeah. You walked in here. I think it was latter '63, early '64, and he had a big rack. And there would be a, Best of, you know, a Brenda Lee, a Fabian, um, Bobby Rydell. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I walked in one day, and there's this one album, black and white only.
1: Close your eyes and I'll kiss you. Tomorrow i miss you. Remember I'll always be true. Every,
0: Every single stall was taken with this album called Beatlemania. And it was $3.98. So, uh, hey, mom, could I? I bought that album and I brought it home, and life changed for me forever. Right. Once I had that LP, and I started buying albums after that. But uh, Beatlemania was something else because they did songs on there, which uh, I don't have to admit this, but I will. There were some Motown covers. Right. And I didn't know that. Right. I thought they did them. Sure. I think, I think most kids would. Oh, and then I'd, I'm a big album notes guy. Uh-huh. So I, I'm seeing this one, this rollover Beethoven by who? C. Berry. Who's C. Berry? Right. So I look it up, and I hear I buy Chuck Berry's version. Same as Johnny Cash. I, um, here in Canada, there was no Sun Records or anything like that. So quality records distributed just about everything. Atlantic Records, you name it, the label. And so I bought... You know, Teenage Queen, uh, songs like that. When Johnny was still doing Rockabilly in Memphis. Tell me about that step to the Beatles, because, I mean,
1: people have talked about it a lot. It is, you know, changes everything for a lot of people. And some people are Stones people and some people are Beatles people. Yeah. But it seems like the Beatles get to the most ears and eyes very quickly, maybe faster than any other band at that point.
0: They did for me. Yeah. And uh, there was a commercialism and they knew how to write, the hooks were incredible. And, you know, as each album came out, in Canada, the second album became Twist and Shout, that pink and white one. Uh U.S. didn't get that. And just remember, we got the Beatles before the U.S. U.S. didn't think much of them. They were on VJ Records. They were on this label. They were on that label. There was even a twofer with the Four Seasons, Meet the Beatles, stuff like that. And then eventually with uh, uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand, then the U.S. started to take them seriously. But... There was a poppy sound about these guys and of course the night I sat on my couch right. with my parents and there they are on Ed Sullivan. <laughs>
1: Let's dive into that, because I feel like parents, unless you're a parent who's just written off rock and roll altogether, which I'm sure there were many, but if you were a parent who was following along and these Beatles show up, I have to imagine that some of the parents out there thought, you know, as much as I don't love this type of music, these guys kind of
0: have a a thing here. (laughs) Not your parents. Not my dad. Clearly. Hey, John. Yes, dad. Uh, They ain't no Ed Ames, you know? (laughs) They're not the Ames brothers. Although my mother liked them. Right. My mother was more futuristic than my father. She understood what I was into. In fact, later on, when the Mamas and Papas came out, she would just say, John, have you got any Mamas and Papas? She loved Mama Cass. She loved the harmonies. My father was a little more old-fashioned. Hey, John, have you got a copy of the new Robertino album? (laughs) This 11-year-old whiz kid from Italy. Okay, Dad, I'll see what I can do. Yeah, right. And so how old are you around then? You are like 13 or something. Yeah, yeah, well, I think I feel <laughs> great, then. Let me think. No. <laughs> carry the four. I was 13. Yeah, carry the four. Uh, I was 13 or 14. Right. So right and, in the pocket. Right, right in the pocket. And I was buying a Fab Magazine up at the corner at this local spur station, Spur Gas. Right. They had Fab Magazine. And then I'd learn about Jerry and the Pacemakers and Sulla Black and Herman's Hermits and all of those people. And I became a British invasion fanatic. Right. And I started buying Jerry and the Pacemakers Oh, Sounds Orchestral. <laughs> that was an instrumental album. I was just talking to Ron Davis not too long ago and he was
1: lamenting the the, the slow or, or imminent death of uh of instrumental music as a popular format. You know, especially in pop music. You know, you think of Booker T and the MGs and right. 62. Yeah, and, and
0: those you know? types of records, uh, the Tijuana Brass and so on, like those were number one records. I mean, I went out on, on Apex Records and went fanatical for something called Woo-Hoo,
1: Woo-Hoo,
0: Yeah, and it was Woo-Hoo <laughs> by the Rocket Teams. <laughs> wow. And um, Bulldog, uh, that was another one. Um, and then all the surf music. And, there was surf music, yeah. all of that stuff. And they were all instrumental, and they were climbing the charts. Uh-huh. Today... That probably won't happen. No, but I could sit down
1: and listen to one after another. You know, I was always admired that the Beastie Boys finally put out an album of instrumental yeah. music. I thought that was a bold move for guys who really weren't a weren't known for it whatsoever, and, right? And there was no room for it in pop culture whatsoever. So the fact that they did it, my son turned great. me on the Beastie Boys. <laughs> they have a great new book. Um, so you have all these experiences, you're, you're collecting, you are uh, listening to the music. When do you finally get your chance to say, okay, now I'm going to to enter this world that I've been loving so much?
0: I was uh, young for my age to do this, but I was managing a little band mm-hmm. out in Curtis called Linda and the Chancellors. <laughs> and we had Billy Gogan on lead guitar. Billy Gogan was like the – I don't know how we ever got him. Donnie Underhill who later went on to be with Trooper playing bass out west. Wow. Donnie was on bass. What did managing involve for, for this band? Just getting the bookings. Right. But phone in the pizza place. Yeah. That yeah. kind of thing. But the big deal was we didn't have any money for PA equipment. Right. I heard there was a local guy at the radio station that rented equipment, okay. George Gudgeon. George did a 30-minute show a week on the best places to go for hunting and fishing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, So I looked him up and I came down. I sat with him and uh, we worked out a deal to rent the equipment. And I said, you know, I really think I'd like to do this full time. And he said, well, listen, next week I'm going to do my show live from the A&W drive-in. Why don't you come up? You can read the best places to go to hunting and fishing. I made the mistake of telling my friends. Well, the Parking lot. Honk honk honk. Hey Johnny Everybody's there. Everybody's there. Right. And I and I read it. because uh, by then I had a little I had a tape machine, a little Phillips, and I would sit there and read the newspaper. I was trying to figure out how to do this and, and so that worked out okay, which led me to meet the all night guy who has been for twenty-five years the biggest name in commercials in the States, Ron Morey. Right. Ron was the all night guy, and uh, in the middle of the night, Ron liked to go to the boardroom and entertain. <laughs> so uh, he'd say, John, why don't you go in the air for an hour? Right. That's the nice thing about Oshawa. You know, management slept. Wonderful people, but they slept. So I'd go on every Friday night and Saturday night. Uh, I wouldn't sleep from Friday morning till probably Sunday afternoon, but I went on the air, did my thing. And then one day, Ron says, Hey, I got a big offer. I'm going to Regina. So Terry Mann, the program director, who I loved, uh, says to Ron, well, who are we going to get, you know? Well, we could do John. Right. John's never been on the radio. Sure uh, he has. Yes, he has. <laughs> After I got a little, tiny little lecture, not bad, I got hired for $75 a week right. to do the all-night show. I remember we had a hotline in the control room there, and, and one night I closed my eyes. And the next thing I know... I'm looking at the phone and the hotline's going. Uh huh. And I look over to the right to the, where the turntable is, you go. <laughs> <laughs> How long we'd been off the air, I have no idea. It happens to the best of us. But it was one of my female listeners, Babe Brown. Yeah. And Babe said, John. So I thought, well, that's it. I'm going to get it. But this is the way it worked in
1: medium. Did, did you get it? No. You never heard say. So I'll, I'll quickly share my story, which is uh, I did something very similar. I was rolling reel to reel. And uh, I was so tired and I was so bored by whatever this was, was, some talk show, that I curled up and fell asleep underneath the board. No. Yes, I did. Well, and, good for you. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? <laughs> and then, no. And <laughs> and those then, were the early days. Those was very early days, so the, the very beginning. And I woke up and, of course, the reel was still spinning. It was that, you know, that sinking feeling. And I remember putting on a new spool, whipping yeah. it around, hitting play. And no sooner had it started to play again than the technician walked in. It was a weekend or whatever it might be. And he, he looked at me, what's going on? And I said, I don't know. Everything's fine here.
0: <laughs> Good for you, Mark. Yeah. And you haven't changed it. You can still pull that off. You can still pull these uh, magic tricks. But that happens. That happens.
1: And I love an overnight Guy, I mean, yeah. there's not as much overnight radio as there used to be, but
0: it, for a lot of us, that's, there isn't. That's where we started, and uh, there's a certain romance. And, and part of the way. romance was uh, a buddy of mine delivered uh, Colonel Sanders' chicken, <laughs> otherwise I, known as
1: KFC. For KFC, the kids.
0: <laughs> and I got to meet Jim. And Jim says, "What do you do? Yeah. Oh, I do the all night show at CKLB. Oh, okay. How do you get? Can I go? Can I come to the studio? Sure. There's a fire escape at the back. Right. You just ring the bell." Anyway, he started this thing where he says, you know, we're not allowed to resell any food we don't use. He'd come in with three or four buckets of chicken. Wow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, not the best thing for Johnny. <laughs> right. But the nice, the thing about medium market radio then yeah. and small market radio was when somebody would leave, you moved up a shift. It was that simple. So that radio station in Oshawa then, all shifts except the evening shift were middle. what we Called the middle of the road format. Rosemary Clooney, Tony Bennett. Yeah. But in the evening, that's when you became a rock jock. So I became a rock jock, and they had this little box of 45s. And I could play anything I wanted in whatever order I wanted. That's when I really realized now I've hit the big time. This is my music. Um, the UAW Hall in Oshawa, Saturday afternoons, I would go and operate for rock and Roscoe Campbell. The Supremes played there jb and the playboys a lot of local bands that were really really big but the supremes and others uh, would appear there and i would be able to see it all happening and so that lasted oh gosh until september of 67 and then then the biggest break of all came uh i started phoning big g walters who was at ckfh he's my hero i asked him i'd come and sit in with him sure now i'm a guy with pointed shoes. And, and I had, a you know, a cow lick. Right. I mean, I was as square as can be. And there's sure. G going, hey, man, you want a joke? Right. <laughs> I've seen pictures of you in those days. Oh, yeah. You know, and I go, what's that? Pretty proper. Oh, boy. Yeah. Anyway, I hung out with him. He was very, very nice to me. Very nice. Tom Williams, who was the co-president or co-owner of Attic Records, worked at Warner's and so on. He brokered the all-night show. So he got to sell the spots. Hire his own announcer, and then he'd pay Foster Hewitt a piece of the action, I guess. Right. So I'm sitting out there in Oshawa doing 80 of Soul, the show from 930. Well, this is weird. From 5 till 9, I do top 40. Uh-huh. Then, for half an hour, 35 minutes, The World Tomorrow with <laughs> Gardner Ted Armstrong. Okay. I got religion right in the middle. Wow. We had 80 minutes left of the show. RB is becoming really big. I go to my PD. He was progressive. And I say, Terry, do you think I could do 80 minutes of soul music? But I need some money to buy records. Right. So I went off to Toronto to Record World on Avenue Road, right in that fancy, fancy you know, area now. Donnie Walsh from Downchild is working in there. Right. And a bunch of people. Anyway, I bought my records, did the 80 minutes. While I was doing that, Walt Grealis of RPM Records has a cottage uh, in Whitby on Lake Ontario. And he's listening to me. So, Tom Williams calls him up and says, You know, I want to change hosts. Have I got the guy for you? He called me, Would you uh, send me an audition tape? Sure, I chicken out, I don't send the tape now
1: at that point had you been recording yourself or was it like okay now i gotta do a new audition tape or-
0: i got a new idea I, yeah. I, I hadn't done I'm me too i'm, I'm terrible i hadn't done like it that. at all you just do it but know. i had a part-time job that summer yeah i was working at the cne i was the guy sitting with, all right on uh building number seven it was a communications building okay and uh so i got a part-time job there and the phone rings one day john tom williams Uh, I haven't got your tape yet. Huh, I sent it. Must have got lost. (laughs) You're in town? Yes. Come on down. Do the audition live. Right. So I go down and did the best impression of Big G Walters I could, but throwing my own self into it, and I got the job. Hence, the All Night Rhythm and Blues show, which was phenomenal. And the artists that I met, I mean, I worked with Jackie Wilson and Sam and Dave and all these people. Is crying, crying. Drops. My never drops.
1: Let me let me uh, back up a little bit because yes, you, there's this record collection, this early introduction into radio, your love of radio. Is live music happening in your life at this point, or does that come?
0: Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, about 10 minutes from here, there used to be a combination dance hall and hockey. There was uh, curling. Right. All that stuff. Well, I would come out there. I'd, I'd get on the bus. And, and, and how old are you at this point? I think I'm just turning 21. Okay. Like all the bands, David Clayton, Thomas and the Shays, John and Lee and the Checkmates, all of these local bands. And these were the days where a local band... It just filled the place. The, lo- the the kids just really backed the locals. You know? the, the, oh, it was called the Broom and Stone. That's the Regional Axe, if yeah, you will. Broom yeah, Broom and Stone. That's okay. what it was called. Broom and Stone. And Curling. then uh, you know, Club 888 right there at Davenport and uh, Young. Because I was doing rhythm and blues, I would hang out at the Club Blue Note down on Young Street. And that's where I met all kinds of famous, famous R&B artists who would just drop in. It was just a phenomenal experience for me. Uh, getting to know all of these, you know, black acts. And uh, I was a guy. And then, this is embarrassing. Well, not really anymore. It's, I'm too old for that. You already told the Fabian story. So. Yeah, well, uh, here's another one. When <laughs> I'm 21, I'm starting to go to Lecoq d'Or, and I finally meet Ronnie Hawkins. Right. And Ronnie uh, was there a lot at Lecoq d'Or, but so were other acts. So there's this guy in there, and he's playing sax. And I'm going, this guy's really good. So I go up to him, you know, I said, you're really good, man. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, What's your name? Uh, King Curtis. Right. Uh, And and have you made any records? (laughs) You know, like, I really didn't know a damn thing about King. I'm sure that's not the first time that it happened to him. But... He would come up to the radio station after that almost every other night, bring two go-go girls with him, right. one in each lap. Uh-huh. Then he'd send them down the alley to France to get us grilled cheese sandwiches. Right, <laughs> And he treated me like a king. And when he was killed, I, I, I was very upset. It was also on that all-night show that two years before Woodstock, I'm interviewing Richie Havens for that very first album of his, you know, yeah. and uh, things like that. So I got to meet an awful lot of great people. And then when I went daytime, of course, there'd be other things going on.
1: More with legendary broadcaster John Donabee in moments. You're with the Zoomer Podcast Network. Back to Art at the End of the World Remix. My guest today, one of the greats in the business of broadcasting, John Donneby. And we'll get to the second half of the conversation here. And at the end, a bonus round gift for you. John's top five albums, concerts and more. He will list them off and we'll play the music.
0: Mustang Sally Tell me about Wilson Pickett. Okay. Wilson Pickett, who, uh, hey, he wasn't the nicest guy in the world, but he was okay. And he said, okay, John. Yeah, the wicked the, Pickett. The wicked. Am I got said, that right? Yes, sir. And he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. What's that? You're emceeing, right? Yeah, okay. Well, towards the end of midnight hour, I am going to go down on one knee. And I'm going to, you know, go into this thing, and you're going to run out. And grab the mic off the floor, which I've dropped, and going the wicked picket, the wicked picket, the wicked picket. I'll take the mic back. I'll finish the song. Okay, perfect. I'm waiting in the wings of Massey Hall. <laughs> so it's sort of the almost the James Brown cape thing. You're, oh yeah, you're kind of that guy. It's I'm, I'm that guy, right. and I'm so excited. I'm sitting there, sitting there. Yeah. Down he goes. Right. Mic's on the floor. Okay. <laughs> and I go running out, and he elbows me right in the gut. No kidding. Oh yeah, knocked me right over and off stage. Off stage. All of a sudden within three minutes, he's down on his knee again. And I'm like, Uh uh I'm a little apprehensive he's looking at me like, Come here, you yeah. SOB. Yeah, really. And, okay, wicked picket, Wicked Picket. So we get backstage, I said, Mr. Pickett. <laughs> and he's going, It's my fault. I forgot to tell you I did that twice. <laughs> But, oh, my God, you know, I was so embarrassed, you know. And Jackie Wilson, you you introduced Jackie Wilson, too? Jackie Wilson was done at the, a lot of people get this wrong. Okay. um, Because it was at the Royal York Hotel, but it wasn't in the big room downstairs. It was in the Canadian room upstairs. Right. He came out, Mark. I'd seen him on Dick Clark's show, and I'm bringing him on. The room is filled with women. Because this guy was such a sex symbol. So he starts a show. He would do a thing where he'd do a twirl. Right. And then stop. And then wink. And the girls, it was like Be- the Beatles. And then he'd go down and, and do the splits. And he did this. Oh, anyway, it's time now to get him off. So I go to g- grab him by the arm to help him off the stage. Yeah. The girls grabbed They ripped my sports jacket down the left. It was like the Beatles or something. Right. This guy was so unbelievable. He, and he was so exciting. You know, I mean, I emceed two shows with James Brown at Maple Leaf Gardens. And James, of course, was incredible. Uh, but Jackie in a small venue like that, uh, he just
1: blew my mind away. It's fascinating. I think about uh, what Tom Wolfe had to say about the Beatles and the electric Kool-Aid acid test and how, you know, George Harrison would move his the neck of his guitar a little bit and there'd be a ripple throughout the crowd. And I thought that was such a wonderful image. But Jackie
0: seems, seems like he had that power. You know. He was cool. He would just do a wink. Yeah, and these girls went nuts. Were you working with me when I interviewed Tom Wolf?
1: No, I wasn't. Okay, I was just just ahead of that. my ahead of my time or just after? Yeah, yeah, probably after. But what an amazing guy! Yeah. Now here you are talking to these soul R and B. You know they're legends now, but at the time. Similar to now, it's a difficult time in American oh, yeah. history. The civil rights movement is happening. I mean, is that, how is that affecting you?
0: Uh, not, not a whole lot. Right. Um, You're just loving the music. I'm just loving the music. I would get white guys calling up sometime and using the N-word and followed by lover. Hey, N-lover. Hey, N-lover. Yeah. One night I was on the air. It was 3 a.m. And the door down on Grenville was always locked, but not this night. And this guy works his way up to the door that comes into the studios, and he's ringing the little be- light so I could see someone was there. And I come out and I go, uh, Can I help you? I'm here to kill the disc jockey. I, I'm serious. I'm here to kill. He was wrecked out of his mind, stoned. Uh-huh. I call 52 Division. They come running up. They got him, took him away. This is like 1966, or 67, 68. And so he was there to kill you. Oh, yeah. yeah. But uh, uh, actually, the line, uh, Mark, you'll say, This is you, Johnny. He goes, I got to kill the disc jockey. I went, I'll go get him. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true. And I go running to the back, called 52. <laughs> 25 years later, maybe 30 years later, I get a phone call. Mm-hmm. Mr. Donovan, my name is so and so. You would never have known my name, but I want to thank you for straightening out my life. I'm going, uh, it was this guy wow they put him in whatever they did rehab and everything else he straightened out but that was a strange little story in the middle of the night at grenville and young you're know?
1: kidding i mean this
0: that's the stuff they make movies out of i think about the
1: movie talk radio i mean that's what that
0: oh yeah movie was oh about. yeah kill the dj yeah. what, what was the, the movie grand. clint eastwood did um, right i remember that, no, one. that one that one scares me because i actually met a woman when i was early chum fm before i got married who uh it, it, we got together one evening, and then uh, she would call me every night. And if I didn't respond, it was uh, pretty frightening.
1: Right. It was weird. I actually made the mistake. People told me this was crazy, but early in my career, I made the mistake of going out with one of those listeners. So you going yeah. for Chinese food or something like that. And it was, it was very difficult. I should have not done that. You need to keep that, that line so
0: yeah. you know, most audience members were pretty good. Sure. I, I I do want to tell this just real. This is like a thirty-second story, but you know, I hope my my wife's upstairs; she can't hear me. She knows the story, right? But I, I was I was dating this girl from Western, Libby. Libby and I were really into Seals and Crofts and uh, the Baha'is and all of that stuff. It was really neat, and we were having a great time. So Seals and Crofts were at Massey Hall. I'm the MC. She's about ten rows back. So when the spotlights come up for me, you can actually see the first ten rose uh-huh not a nice word but this is what happened uh, good evening everyone my name is john donabee faggot right that old chestnut libby didn't miss a beat i'm going uh she stands right up turns around and says oh no he's not <laughs> oh jeez! It was. I'm glad she did, but no it kidding. was. Uh, it was pretty weird. Well, yeah. that's that's pretty quick, Connor Fee. Ah, uh, she was. Well, she was a very bright. woman.
1: <laughs> so I'm I'm looking at it. I mean, CKFH, Chum Q, uh, CFRB, CBC, CTV, Jazz FM, where you and I both worked. No, I don't think I was there. I don't remember. <laughs> <necessarily>. <laughs> but yes but uh, uh, an incredible run and an incredible all these different uh, uh, places and different and you worked in different formats and worked into you know rock country R and b when did you or, or what did you think about craft? you talk about you know trying to emulate, some of the voices you were hearing at the beginning but of course right. you become so well known for being a, a great interviewer and somebody and and to this day i remember sitting down with our our boss uh at news talk to Intend, steve couch and i remember him just saying to me john is a great broadcaster and it was one of the first times in my career where i thought what does that mean exactly and I was able to really give it some thought. And and I thought, well, there's a clear personality there. There's a clarity in the voice. There is somebody who is in control most of the time on the air. (laughs) Most of the time. and, 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 uh, And so it got me thinking about the craft of what we do. Because this is a podcast where I talk to a lot of artists. And in my mind, there is an art to what it is we do. And, and and that comes in announcing music, that comes in interviewing, and, and all the different uh, tasks that are handed to us as broadcasters. So tell me about craft.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of it had to do with uh, time, mm-hmm. uh, being able to, you know, I've done this for <clears throat> like over 50 years. right? So something I was able to do, there is still, I'll, I'll say this, there's still nobody in this market that went from top 40 to underground radio to sort of sweet sounds to country to talk to jazz yeah. to classical. I did all the formats, and I had no problem jumping from format to format. And so I would do interviews in all of those formats. And, and, and a lot of really great program directors would say, my God, you know, I don't think there's anybody else that can do that. But as I, as I would grow... In each format, it made me feel self-assured because I was a very, very insecure guy. Uh And um, why was that? Hmm. Well, it started off really young. Right. Uh, That that came, and uh, I mean, I love my dad, and we ended up really good toward the end of his life. But uh, he uh, was—he didn't make it easy to feel secure. Right. You know, he Uh, was—he was second-guessing a lot of your decisions. Everything. Yeah. Uh, Whereas my mother was. uh, I remember the day, dear I got, old mom. I remember the day I got the job at CKLB. Seriously, I'm in the back seat of the 53 Chevy. My father says, "So what's your shift?" And I tell him, "Well, what are you going to do the rest of the day?" Cause, right. I mean, he worked eight till five. Right. You know, there's but, this thing called prep, Dad. Yeah, yeah really. People but I got more and more. I got, got more hours. and more secure as I went on, and I almost thought that nothing can happen to me. Uh, look at me. Now it's 19. 19- 90, Mm -hmm. 89. And I get fired at Country 59. Right. ever been fired. And I will tell you that psychologically, I went around for about a month wondering, who is John Donaby? And I'm not kidding around there. I knew who John Donaby, the radio announcer, was. But who am I? Right. And that was a tough one. That was really, really a tough one. And then, then I get a lot of people, too, who (laughs) <laughs> and we've both known some of them right. uh, who really took shots at you and uh, ripped open the wound. But uh, you, you learn to patch yourself up, heal yourself, keep going. You were a strong believer in in prep
1: for especially Absolutely. for certain certain interviews. You, Absolutely, you, you really I went spend to hours, town. Mark.
0: Yeah, you know, I'd spend hours on prep. I wanted to go in and have so many questions ready that if something started to slow down, I could jump to here, jump to there.
1: Somewhere
0: there's music. Ain't the tune. Somewhere there's I'll hide the Elef, there 's heaven moon my no God, she was the ultimate who just frightened me to death. I mean I went into the uh, to, to the hotel to do an interview with her. I had it down. I was so prepped right and Gino Emery, the late Gino Emery. He runs in and turns off the young and the restless which he's watching. She was <laughs> the livid. stories. Yeah, yeah. She was livid. So I start talking she goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know your stuff. Why don't you ask me about my cookbooks? Why don't you ask me about my grandchildren?" And there was a few seconds of panic. Of so course. I okay, and I got her talking about it and then I brought her back and we got into the career. But I was so overprepared. Were
1: you always concerned with the artists themselves, or where where did the listener come into that didn't equation? Care. You didn't care.
0: It was really <laughs> no, about that about relationship. The, I you was hoping, uh, no, I, I don't mean that. I was hoping that the audience would love the interview, uh-huh. but I really wanted to impress the artist. Right. And what I'd always do, and I was given some great advice, I would find out something about that artist that most people didn't really knew. This sounds like a Brian Linehan thing. Right. But it's true. And I'd find something. It's harder to do in this day and age because yes. so much is documented. Well, there's just too much out there. Right. But I you know, I'd throw a question out and they go, how do you know that? Once I got past that question, they would pretty much tell me the story of their life. But I would usually throw it out pretty early into the interview and try and blow them away. Some didn't act quite that way, but most did. Most Most thought they were impressed that I'd taken the time. I'd read the book i'd done this i'd done that i never went in unprepared right
1: you know i'm, I'm just gonna run some names by you because you've spoke to a lot of these people and you m- just mentioned ella fitzgerald which was i know was a big one and oh yeah it's so incredible i mean watching her later interviews i know how tough she was so you you did well with her but elvis costello early that was tough oh, to be disgusted, and now I try to be-
0: toughest right i'm waiting to interview elvis costello and i got a call from chum where uh, dave the promo guy from sony goes john i'm here i'm with elvis he's just made someone literally cry yeah uh and he couldn't be bigger he is changing the face of yeah the music. and he's gonna appear at the Elmo, he's gonna yeah. do all this stuff he said but i told him something about you so what did you tell him I told him you could get him a 45 copy of Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks doing Bo Diddley. He walks in the room. I said, hey, never mind. Can you get me a 45 of Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks? Yes, I can. Right here. Right here. I didn't have it. Yeah, right. And then I had him for the interview. But he was like, if you watch those early Bob Dylan Uh, Interviews, you know, in San Francisco and stuff. John Lennon, those two, perfect. Smart asses. Right. Brilliant, but smart asses. Uh And that's the way Elvis was. But he warmed up. Meatloaf, that was a toughie. He grabbed me around my my sweater or shirt, whatever I was wearing, because I told him the interview was over. Thanked him very much. We'd done a long interview. He He, still had some things to say. He had some things to say. (laughs) As opposed to working in Vancouver interviewing Brian and Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, who are appearing there in town. Uh, Brian, my next question is, okay, we're done. And they both stood up. Nice meeting you. And out they went. So the interview is over. And I was really upset. But the nice thing is, the opposing radio station was the presenter he gets to, I get to interview him right yeah he decides to go back to the hotel <laughs> they never got to interview him oh man they of were live livid of course yeah. of course Beach Boys
1: people say I'm crazy doing what I'm doing well they give me all kinds of warnings just say
0: you mentioned Lennon. You talked to him twice. John Lennon twice. Once live. Once on the phone uh, during the Walls and Bridges period. I got that interview through Ronnie Hawkins because he knew Ronnie because he'd stayed out at Ronnie's house in Mississauga. Seems like
1: Ronnie's been a, uh, a
0: valuable friend. A friend. That's been a valuable friendship. I can't. Un- I, I can't say enough about Ronnie. Uh, I'm at Varsity Stadium for that big, giant rock concert in 69. Uh And he said, hey, son, look who's coming over here. I want you to meet Levon Helm. Right. Oh, okay, that's good. Levon's wearing a houndstooth jacket that Uh Dylan wore during those concerts back then. I just went out and spent my entire salary on a suede jacket from Le Chateau. I'm looking sharp. (laughs) He walks over and said, hello, Mr. Helm. Yes, I was like, son. I'll run you a mile for that jacket. Run you a mile. And, yeah, uh, and, and Albert Grossman's sitting there and said, Mr. Grossman, <laughs> it's really a pleasure to meet you. And he goes, I'm sure it is. <laughs> Ronnie says, now, Albert, be nice or I'll pull that little piggly wiggly of yours. <laughs> yes, that, that's the way of saying that Ronnie Hawkins, backstage at the last waltz, uh, we hung out with, with Graham for a while and different people. And uh, Ronnie has been so good to me yeah. over the years. He introduced me to a lot of people. And uh, yeah, he famously
1: said to me, uh, "I met him through you, of course." And and for people who don't know Ronnie Hawkins, if you rent or watch The Last Waltz, he's one of the first people to come yep. out in the show, and and they do uh, uh, what, what track Bo Diddley and Who Do You Love? I yeah, they do Who yeah. Do You Love? And he's he's a real character. He's larger than life. Of course, he was the leader of of the Hawks, but he says to me, he goes, "You know, Mark, that John Donabee, his b is harder than and he's arithmetic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I've I've never forgotten that. He's because used that line a lot. Yeah, right. I think he has a few lines. There's a better line, but I don't think we can do it. Well, anymore. right. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, uh, he said to me, I've always heard about his parties. Yeah. Like they were notorious. Uh-huh. So one night I'm saying, Ronnie, 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 can I come with you to this party tonight? Yeah, okay. Where are we going? It's all a crowbar's girlfriends, and crowbar are on the road, so it's just women, John. Okay. All right. So we walk in. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, Johnny's a kind of an insecure, turns red kind of guy. Right. So we walk in, and there's all these women, a couple of guys. says, girls, listen up. <laughs> he puts his arm around me. Yeah. This is John Donabee from Chum FM. Yeah. You f***ing suck this boy till he can't stand up, and I'll promise your men a hit record. Wow. Well, I go, of course, totally red. I wouldn't know what this to do with is. That. Not my world. No, no. For those listening, <laughs> that's not me. <laughs> so anyway, but he would do things, and, and I'd be in rooms with him in hotels where he'd say things to women. I go, oh my god. Yeah, he was a wild man. He was a wild man. He's, uh, yeah, I guess he's down in Florida now. He's 82, 83. He's not really well. And they say, he's the man who paved Young Street. Yeah. He was one of the three most powerful people in the 60s. You had Ron Scribner running a Big Land Agency. You couldn't get booked anywhere anywhere without Big Land. You had Bob McAdory running 1050 Chum Music Director. Mm-hmm. And you had the Hawk. And the Hawk. The three of them together controlled everything. Just back to Lennon for a moment. I can't imagine
1: what you must have gone through to prepare for both of those. Interviews. It just must. Have, I mean, there's been a few times in my life I spoke to uh, uh, Sonny Rollins earlier this year, and I oh, really, wow. I really sweated it. You know, I just thought, "Gosh, this guys. They don't suffer fools." Those guys, Not exactly. And you <laughs> yeah. just think to yourself, "How am I going to do this? I yeah. hope, I hope he'll hang in with me." And I'm sure Lennon must have just been overwhelming.
0: John Lennon was. Uh Very overwhelming. When I talked to him, he was on his famous Drunken Spree in California with Harry Nilsson and May Pang. So they were down there, and we talked about the album. He answered all of my questions. There's a line I use sometimes on different shows I do, and I say, John, is it as bad... Living in New York today, as it was when you are with the Beatles, and he'll go, "No, once was enough." Thank you very much. <laughs> it's a line that I like to steal and take out of the interview. But no, he was very forthcoming. How thrilled he was to have his son Julian playing tambourine on Yaya yeah, and so on and so forth. So I just need to do a, a quick segue to the future. I'm at CKFM interviewing Julian Lennon, and I said, "Julian, you know, I interviewed your father." He's sitting there looking at me, and he goes, "Yeah." One of the greatest rock and roll men of all time. Just not a very good father. Sure. You know, I'm sure he'd had to deliver that line a few times. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Yoko pretty much sold everything that he was supposed to inherit and all that stuff. But yet him and Sean Ono, apparently they're very close. Our conversation was short and sweet. It nearly swept me off of my feet. And I'm back in the rain. Ooh, and you are on dry land. Mm, you made it there somehow. You're a big girl now.
1: Now... You, you certainly. There's great, great pictures of you sitting with Bob Dylan and others, oh. and others. Oh. I think Ronnie's there as
0: well. Roberta Richards was the one who introduced me to Bob, uh, and she knew Bob you know for years one. and years and years. And uh, she said, "Look, I told him what you do for a living." He wasn't thrilled. Doesn't like media, but you know. So anyway, we go backstage. She and her and her husband Dave Barrett, and. Uh, I'm prepared this is the this is the hardest ever I've, you know I've done, Brian Wilson. I've done all these people. I'm terrified, and so I stood there and I'm waiting. so then I say, uh, uh, Mr. Dillon, I just want to tell you how much I love your body of work. Mm-hmm. I figured that's cool, <laughs> yeah, and he just kind of turns, Wilson, whatever turns you on? Oh boy, oh God, and then later that night, the famous picture down at the Nickelodeon, uh, there's me, Dave Barrett. Uh, Lou Kemp, who was Bob's best friend since childhood in Hibbing, Bob, Ronnie, and his wife Wanda. that made the front page of the star the next day right and after that i got to tell you i I was uh, infamous I was famous in my own mind, of course. you met Bob, and then I met Bob again at the last waltz, but I said we met uh okay, right yeah fine
1: okay it 's always a little disappointing, especially if you 've actually spent a little bit of time. Yeah.
0: With somebody and they of course have no recollection of anything most people. Interviewing people that you've met maybe in this case not not in Bob's case, but at least half a dozen times and uh-huh. they never seem to remember you. No. Uh-huh. And I but I remember you. Right. But they do meet hundreds and hundreds of interviewers. It's so. part of their job, yes, to yeah. get out yeah. there and do that.
1: We've talked about The Last Waltz a little bit, but I think it's worth noting I belong to a documentary club. And so every, oh, yeah. every month we get together and we watch a documentary and it's like 20 guys. And, and uh, usually it, it's something fairly serious. But uh, up in Aurelia the other day, uh, one of the guys said, I'm going to throw a really big party. And I'm gonna, you know, pull out all the stops. And he got a projector and a sound system, and he played the last waltz as our chosen documentary for wow. the month. And I thought to myself, all right, you know, I've seen this a hundred times, but why not? Yeah. And it was so much fun. And a lot of guys hadn't seen it. You know, one of the great lines I can drop in that moment is like, I used to work with a guy who was there and people just can't believe it take us through being invited and getting to there and and that concert and uh i sure. mean it's a huge part of of your life and and uh i know we've talked about it a lot but take
0: us through that experience one of the two biggest concerts i ever attended in my life right all and i my wife and Baby Samantha and Jimmy, he's five. We're living in Vancouver. I'm working for CKLG FM Underground Radio. Don Schaefer and myself uh, for Roy Hennessy. You're in it. You're. This is the '70s. This is '70, uh, '76, 70, uh, right? And the phone rings one day uh, in in the kitchen, and alla says, "John, it's Levon Helm." Oh boy. Hey, Levon, what's going on, son? We're calling it quits. I said, "Pardon?" Right. I didn't know then that you know Robbie really made the decision, but they all had to go along with it. Levon and, wasn't crazy about it. No. He didn't want to finish. Not at all. No. No. Anyway, he said, we're calling it quits. We each get to invite certain people, and I'd like you to be my guest at the last waltz. And we're, Where, Levon? In San Francisco. Once you arrive here, everything will be taken care of for you. But the only thing is, I can't fly you down here, blah, 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 blah. So you get yourself down here. We're going to be at the Miyako Hotel and we're going to be on Thanksgiving Day.
1: Did you have any idea at that point of the, of the concept of Not what the all. show was going to be? Not
0: at all. all. Right. Okay. I, I couldn't believe it. So I'm sitting there and I'm figuring, how do I get myself down there? Two hours later, Roy Hennessy calls me, my program director. Uh, John, Frank Gigliotti from Sony Music is here. Yeah? He wants you to go to San Francisco to interview Boz Skaggs for his new album. When would that be? Uh, the day before American Thanksgiving. Would that be okay? Oh uh, yeah, that is <laughs> so amazing. I get to the airport. So is that for Lowdown or is that in that or uh, are Silk Degrees? Okay, one right. or the other.
1: Yeah, and not bad in its own right. <laughs> oh,
0: so I'm waiting at the airport. Well, where's Frank? Frank's supposed to go with me. It's now time to go on the plane. Frank never shows. So I get on the plane, and I go down, take a cab. I got the address to Boz Skagg's house. So I go over to the house. Hey, John, how you doing? He brings me in the house, and we do a two-hour interview. Now we're done. He says, can I drive you back to the airport? I said, well, actually, I'm staying for a couple of days. Oh, how come? I'm going to the last walls. Yeah. The what? The Last Waltz. What's that? Well, you know the group, The Band? Yeah. Well, they're calling it quits, and they're going to have a lot of special guests, and Bob Dylan's going to be there. Wow. So he drives me to the Miyako. I know Levon's room number. I go up there, and it's about one o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, he says, John, what do you want for dinner? For dinner? He goes, John, this whole hotel is filled with rock people. They won't go to a restaurant. Right. They've got the worst case of room service here they've ever seen. So, you know, I hung around for the afternoon. And then the story behind the story of the last waltz is not so much the concert itself. The rehearsals were unbelievable. Right. Unbelievable. Van Morrison at the rehearsals, far better than he was in the concert. He'd look, maybe he'd had a few but uh, concert time. Yeah. And Muddy Waters and all of those people. Is so
1: true? Muddy was not supposed they weren't sure whether he was going to go on. Is that the idea?
0: Uh, Muddy always wanted to go on there, right. there is there is stories now now, now Robbie has refuted this. They're overbooked, right. This is just rumor. Robbie says it's not true, and I tend to believe him that you know maybe Robbie thought maybe Muddy should get cut, but he, and he said, "How could I cut Muddy Waters?" And I believe Robbie and, and Levon, of course, fine. Well, that Neil Diamond guy's out. <laughs> and of course, Robbie just produced his album, right. No, Muddy wanted to perform. And two, two quintessential performances in the in the film. Oh yeah, you know you can't have it without Neil Dunn. Yeah, he, he was he was a trip to meet Muddy
1: Waters. I mean, right. uh... that must have been. Just a, such an incredible experience. And and it, when I first met you, you introduced me. It had just been released with that beautiful, I think it was a five point one uh yeah. soundtrack and, and they had yeah. done a great job and of course they got rid of the cocaine out of Neil's nose. nose and yeah. they'd really done a nice job of repackaging it. They showed it in theaters. And so I was just being introduced to it. Now, you know, fifteen years later knowing some of the stories, reading the books. Now Robbie's put out a book. Levon put out the book. And knowing some of the stories behind it, it's just it's such
0: an incredible... You, you know where I was sitting? Where were you? Next time you watch it, uh-huh, and the camera's coming in near Richard, yep. there's curtains right behind him. Uh-huh. I'm sitting there, sitting behind the curtain, right behind Richard. Right. And then I get up sometimes, I go backstage, and then I go out into the crowd, and I remember when they brought all the... This is not in the movie. They brought all the Canadian flags down, and yeah, we're going to play an Ian Tyson song. Joni comes out. Neil's there. And I'm there. Peter Goddard's there, myself. There was a little Canadian, Canadian contingent. right? And we're crying. We're oh, just so proud. Of you course. are so proud. Very a that, Canadian show in a lot yeah, of ways. And, and when the sense. concert ended, oh, well, that was a trip, too, because they were still negotiating with Dylan as the night went on. He, he didn't really want to be on film. So between the concert sort of, I think it was Don't Do It, as, as, as the concert kind of ends... There's a two-hour break before Dylan came on to close the show. And finally, they made an agreement. Bob comes on. They do all that. And as they all go off, everyone goes off except Levon. And he's just sitting there at the drums. He won't get off. So that's how the jam came about. Levon didn't want to quit. He just, you know, unbelievable. uh, So it was a great night. And then we all went uh, back to the Miyako, down to the basement, where it was the party of party of parties. And I won't mention his name, but a very famous interviewer from Canada decided to go in with a tape recorder. Maybe you didn't see the rules. This <laughs> yeah. is play. We shan't be. Uh,
1: well, there's even, I know, how he went. <laughs> Le, Levon uh, mentions in the film when, I think, Martin Scorsese starts asking about the girlfriends and so on. And you can tell Levon was like, Okay. There are things we will talk
0: about and won't talk about. That's in right. This film. Yeah, yeah. I thought we weren't supposed to talk about. <laughs> yeah, that. That. that's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what an experience! It I mean. was, It was. Um, you know, seeing Dylan and the Hawks in 1965, November at Massey Hall. Like, I'm in a new book called The Band, and uh, there's a chapter there where I talk about that concert. But the the writer of the book sent me a note. I never even thought of it. He says, my God, John, you were there at the beginning, you were there at the end. I said, gee, I never thought of it that way, but thank you very much. That's great. You know? Yeah, it was re- yeah. That, that concert at Massey Hall, there's Bob in his houndstooth coat, but anyway.
1: Um, mm. John, I, I want to talk about... Uh, Tony Bennett? No.
0: <laughs> we hung out with Tony Bennett. Yes, we did. Didn't he draw
1: you a little picture? or he Drew a me a little
0: picture, and yeah. and uh, we talked about art because my father was an artist. Yeah, and he, he's never had anyone interview him that really could understand what my dad was doing. So uh, yeah, he was, he, was a nice he was very nice man. He was a nice very, man. It was lovely was nice, man.
1: Nice to meet him, and we talked to uh, Mel Brooks. <laughs> Yes. Which I'll remind, uh, it was a great, because he. Was, I guess he was here doing... Uh, the
0: he was, the, the doing Canadian, Canadian producers, the producers,
1: yeah. yeah. It was my job to bring the little mini-disc recorder. Right. And we recorded, and he did a great interview. And we had waited, there was quite a few people to talk a to lot him. lot of people. And famously, at the end of the interview, I say what? Whoops.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> realize there's nothing is taped. And then Mel Brooks delivers a line right out of a Mel Brooks movie. Hey, what is this? Whoops. <laughs> but he did something for us that because uh, the Mervishes wanted him to move on, and we were done. Of course. And he turned to me. He says, oh, yeah, I know. I made him laugh. Right. I said, Mr. Brooks, because he's a good friend of, Al- of uh, Alan Slate, right. our boss. I said, well, Mr. Brooks, it's really nice to meet you on the very last day of my career. And he cracked up. Yeah. No worry. I'll come back. And he came back. He did. Sang a song for Allah in Polish. The second interview was actually probably better than the first. And he was, and then that night at the at the premiere, he says to Alan Waters, "That guy there, get rid of him."
1: <laughs> it was it was great. Yeah. it was it was actually one of the the last ones we did together. Yeah. tell me when you you know we talked about this a little earlier in the in the podcast, but this idea of difficult times that we live in, and we you turn on the news any night of the week, and can it can be. Kind of depressing, right now. Very. Talk to me about a record you would put on that
0: gives you comfort. I got to go back to the Brown album for a minute by the band Whispering Pines. Uh huh. Probably Rockin' Chair from that particular album. Oh, to be home again down in old Virginia
1: with my very best friend. They call them ragtime Willie. Really. We're gonna soothe the. By years, we're gonna put away all of our tears. That big barber chair won't go no way.
0: Uh Elton John with Amarina from Tumbleweed Connection. Yeah. Lady, I've been thinking but how much I miss my lady. in a car. Riding in the debris And now that I've gotten older, I'm now going back to my parents' time. And I'm, I'm list- I'm, I've am I'm become a giant fan of Johnny Mercer. Huh. And, I, and I'm listening to his lyrics. And he did the North American lyrics to Autumn Leaves, which was originally a French song. The falling leaves Drift by my window wrote days of wine and roses moon river all and i this summer went to moon river down in savannah georgia and i'm standing there there's moon river this is it this is it i
1: remember meeting uh, joni mitchell's daughter and thinking right. to myself this is it this is little green this yeah. is the woman
0: yeah, yeah it's like that's a that's a cool moment like as my daughter once said to me uh, so what famous music place are we going to this year because <laughs> you know i i took them both the kids to big pink yeah we found that on our own because Levon wasn't really crazy about talking about the band in those days. So, you know, went to Big Pink. Uh, my daughter, when she was five, saw Coal Miner's Daughter. Wanted to go to uh, Butcher Holler. Yeah, you know, we took a motor home driving up at about forty-five degree hill. You ever make it to Muscle Shoals? Yes, sir. I was at Muscle Shoals. Muscle Shoals was great because his son showed us all around. When it, there's there's like a bathroom door. And, and you look at it, and there's still the bathroom in there. And it says on air, on on the door. I said, what's this for? He said, well, just go back to Land of a Thousand Dancers. <laughs> One, two, three. <laughs> we needed an echo chamber. Right. So we put him in the bathroom. <laughs> Russell Scholes was... And they still had the same instruments there, Mark. They had the old that oh, they okay. had back in the day. Right. They, they kept them in the studio. So.
1: And was it all the R&B and, and the soul music and everything that you had been so close to on the radio was that what got you to new orleans like what got
0: you oh yeah absolutely i mean i my wife and i starting in 1980 we started going to new orleans we'd go three times a year when i make when i made good money sure (laughs) yeah and we go down we an expensive flight i hear going down it is now yeah and we stayed at the same hotel la richelieu and just down the block that's where uh, Mr. Marcellus Sr. still plays every Friday night. Can't believe it. And that's a trip because uh, I would run in and, and <laughs> I'd go right up to the front table. No reserve tables. And I'd just sit there and watch his hands, you know. I uh, saw Alan Toussaint there. saw a lot of performers there. Did the, you
1: ever see the doctor down there or did you just see him? I saw after? the doctor in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: me too. On a couple of occasions. Yeah. Biggest thrill was driving to Fats Domino's house yeah. uh, before the flood, before Katrina. And all and I are outside, and we got a Mustang, yellow, and John's wearing a white shirt and white pants. This is a poor neighborhood. And I'm standing here, and suddenly this guy comes back Hey, you white trash, what are you doing here? You people come down, and the guy's yelling at me, he's drunk, really drunk. And I said to all, of them, Oh, we're really in trouble. All of a sudden, Fats' door opened Hey, leave my people alone. Yes, Mr. Domino, sir. <laughs> Fats comes out and says, You know, if I wasn't going to see my bass player in the hospital, I'd invite you in for beer and Pig's Knuckles.
1: Pig's Knuckles.
0: That's what he served everybody when they would come in the house. (laughs) But he was one of my true... You know, a lot of people had Elvis and Chuck Berry and all that. I was a Fats fanatic.
1: It's the place that people talk about. There's only only one New Orleans, right? There's
0: only one New Orleans. and, 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 of course, the food. Yeah, The food and the music. You put those two together. We've only gone once since Katrina. Um... Mainly because I have a daughter who's got three children, and lives in Vancouver, right? And we're spending all of our traveling money going to the West Coast. Yeah. But I said to my daughter, I said, and "That's coming to an end. <laughs> right. There are places we have to see, we, we have to go, we got to go to." Yeah. But, right. uh, Can't yeah, put this up. <laughs> I really, but I really did enjoy all those musical places. Talk to me about this. You mentioned
1: it a, a little earlier. The idea of, especially in those late '60s, late '60s period, where a lot of difficult things were happening, and you had to be the guy. On yeah. the radio, you were the voice. People were coming to take a break from their troubles, yet at the same time, be informed about what was going on. So, talk to me about that role on the radio, because you've faced that your entire career with what we talked about with nine eleven, yeah, things that have happened much later, uh, you know, closer to now, and, and things that happened then. Talk to me about being that guy, that that comfortable
0: presence on the radio uh, in in
1: difficult times.
0: it, it, It was difficult because you had to always remember that even though you had to address what the situation was that evening or at that time, that the first thing you were there for was to entertain people. So I would try and speak a little lighter, but I would address the situation. I can't really remember getting too heavy. It was never my style. I didn't really talk too much about what would happen because of this or that. I would just talk about the sorrow. I put listeners on the air. It wasn't easy. I tried to marry the two of entertainment and what was going on. I mean, the the night that Otis died, for example, it was just... Uh, Oh, the women were calling up and just, and I say women because there were no guys calling, and these women were crying and crying, and I'd say, you know, that's okay. It'll be all right, you know. What would you like to hear by Otis? I I do remember specifically a couple times
1: where somebody had passed or there was a very difficult news story, and I remember you would address it and you would share your feelings because sometimes that's all you have on you. And you had a beautiful way of kind of wrapping it up. That's enough of that for now, and let's move on and do what we. Yeah, you had here.
0: to know when to wrap it up because uh, you know the audience wanted to. They wanted to move on as well, but you had to address the situation. Nine Eleven was rough. You and I were there a few days after it actually happened. Uh uh-huh. That was that was a difficult subject to, to get into. What
1: do you, know? What do you think about our art form going forward? Because everybody will tell you. What I've done for most of my career has not been this, this podcast. What I've no, done is, this is all new terrestrial radio and, and do a show. And do you think about that, that uh, what we did is going to become this antiquated idea? I mean, there will always be voices coming out of a speaker. Yeah, But I just think the, the role of that is going well, to change. And,
0: and it's really funny. You hear about all these people saying, you know, the death of radio, the death of radio. And they've been saying that since about 1922 or something. <laughs> I love the medium a lot. I'm not sure what's in the offing for uh, terrestrial radio, because you've got people who have um, what you're doing. Yeah. Um, they've got their uh, so many ways. And what we're doing right here, yeah. sitting across a kitchen table, you're not going to get this on terrestrial radio. No. You're not going to be able to march into any talk station or anything. Say, so, Yeah, I'd like to do an hour and a half with name the name. Right. So you get to do this. So you have total power. You're the owner. Fortunately, I hope that you become uh, the treasurer. Yeah, you're know? going to be fabulously rich through and this. be fabulously sure. rich. Yeah, That's the hardest thing for people I know that have started these. It, it's tough it is. to know what to do. And how do you draw attention?
1: If you'd had a chance to speak with one artist that you didn't get a chance to speak with, who would it have been? Does it have
0: to be a musical artist? No. After covering his appearance here in Toronto for World Youth Day, I would have liked to have really sat down with uh, Pope John Paul. That was an exciting day for you. I cried. Yeah, I I remember that. Father John watched me. I was out in there. I went down on my knees in the mud. I mean, I was. I was raised Catholic. I'm not a good Catholic. I'm a fallen away Catholic. But when he drives by and he gives you a blessing, Uh it really, it really kind of uh, blew me away. But musically, though, I would love to sit down with Bob Dylan. But I'd be a little frightened because uh, you know he doesn't suffer fools, and he, you know, it, it, it. You're no fool. Yeah, thank you. But, thank uh, you very much.
1: Real quick uh, about the Pope. Uh, something that you taught me that I didn't realize is that uh, he had his own record.
0: Yeah, I've got it. I got about eight <laughs> copies. You want one? I'll give you a, I'll give you a copy. Okay. John Marie Heimrath was the promo guy who uh, who pushed that record. I had to push that record. It was, yeah.
1: a, it was a tough one.
0: It, uh, oh know, yeah. John for, Marie had a little tough time. <laughs> not for everybody. <laughs> not for everybody. <laughs>
1: Since we're talking about uh, The Last Waltz and some of these great interviews and so on and so forth, uh, maybe we should go through some uh, some rapid-fire lists. Rapid-fire? Yeah, what do you say? And, okay. Uh, and, I mean, th- you are a man who has uh, listened to so many records. You're a musicologist. Uh, you've been to so many concerts. You've interviewed so many people. Uh, it's got to be tough for you to narrow down uh, some of these top five lists. But we'll start with, um, why don't we start, since we're talking about concerts, let's start with concerts. John Donabee's top five concerts that he ever
0: saw. I can't even imagine what these would be, except I have one in mind. Ry Cooter live at Convocation Hall. What year In 71 or 72, and he has this backup rhythm guitar player. No need to have him. In fact, I asked John Hyatt, how did you end up on that tour? Yeah. He said, I was starving. Rye saved my life. Wow. So he went on the tour. So here I'm at Con Hall, got, well, I'm going to, I'd leak into another part maybe of what you're going to ask me about interviews, but uh, Rye Cooter, live at Convocation Hall, would probably be number five. <laughs>
1: I feel like Convocation Hall was one of those great venues at a certain point. And I feel it's so
0: sad that they don't use it. It's right on the U of T grounds. Yeah. The big round building. And they just don't use it that much. You I know. saw Bruce Coburn in there once. I am seen so many shows there. Yeah. The nineties band played there, you yeah. know. Uh yeah. Well anyway, so Ry Cooter. Great Ry Cooter, still going. Still going. All right, Got to f- see him at Massey Hall a while back. Number four. A number four would be um James Brown live at Maple Leaf Gardens. Got to MC two of his shows. What, what year is this? Uh, we're talking around 68, 69. So he is just in it. Oh, he—he's—he's he's at the peak. And and on the second show, uh, he told me just to come to his stage door. So I go up the door, and there's a guy there, man. I'm telling you, he's like six-eight, you know, wow. three hundred pounds. Yeah. What do you want? Uh, I'm here to see Mister Brown. <laughs> I wasn't really talking like really? that. But, sure. And he said, "Yeah, sure you are." And you in your in your mind's eye. Yeah, that's that's how it's. <laughs> and I said, "Would you mind just opening the door and tell him it's it's John Donavie here?" <laughs> okay. Yeah, James or Mister Brown, some guy named John. Get in here. Get in here. Yeah. And we talked for a while, and he offered me a job. Uh, In Macon, Georgia At one of his radio stations Wow And being the chicken I am Just like when Seals and Cross Offered me a job To be a road manager uh, I'm really busy You know Right (laughs) I don't know that you would have Wanted James Brown To be your boss no, I don't think so. I, don't, I think he made a wise decision. I think the funniest part there's of There's no ja- chickening out there. There's no The funniest part of seeing James Brown is I would leave the stage area and I'd go down about halfway to watch him, right? And there's a big cop standing at me. Oh, you're the MC guy, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> What's well, all this talk about James Brown being, uh, you yeah, know, nothing's happening here. I said, "Give it 5 minutes." He goes into, "Please, please, please." They start coming down from the grays, Mark. Oh, and they play the place went insane. Yeah. And when I went to take him off, some girl, you know, they used to have people behind the stage above. Yeah, yeah. She jumped. Oh my gosh! And it was heading for my back, and one of his big bouncers just went right over top of me, and he took the fall. So that's there's
1: one. That's great, James Brown at the James height Brown. of his, at the height of his power, pretty impressive.
0: John Lennon and the Plastic Ono Band at Varsity Stadium. Interesting choice. Now, of course, a legendary concert,
1: and so many incredible people played that yeah. during that festival, but. It's not everybody's cup of
0: tea as far as what John was up to at that point. When I tell people this part, they go, what? Like Little Richard, uh, was it Little Richard that came on after John? Him I love. But the doors closed the show, not John Lennon. Right. And I walked out then. (laughs) I didn't like Jim Morrison. I didn't like the doors. Yeah. So I I left. But Lennon, just to watch him. Then, of course, Yoko got into that white bag with that. I went, oh, my God. Yeah. But there's this is, Eric. That's what I'm talking about. It's not everybody's cup of tea. No. But, there's Eric, period, Eric Clapton on lead guitar and, right. and Alan White and uh, Klaus Vorman, who did the Revolver album cover on wow. bass. Wow. You know, and the guy from Yes on, on drums.
1: Yes, I know.
0: That was something, and of course, they only could do old rock Bill, and roll. Bill Bruford, is that? No, it no? Wasn't Bill Bruford? Okay. It was. Uh, no. Would Alan White have been the guy on drums? Anyway, it's a long time. Sort of comer. a super, super a band. It was a super group of types. Yeah, yeah. good one. Number three. All right. No, okay, no, no, here we two. go. Um, that would be. I'm sad to hear about the Doors, by the way. Uh, I yeah, I know. Was I know. That. You walked out on Jim Morrison. Come on. I walked out on Jim Morris. <laughs> number two would be. The Last Waltz, 1976. Interestingly, I think people would have thought that would be number one. I know, but I know. And, and it was sensational. It was incredible. I have a big sign in the other room. I I, I, I still have my uh, last wall's button that I had to wear to, to walk around through security. Um, I guess it is worth noting, though, it was a
1: different experience than what people see in that film. I mean, it was, like you pointed out,
0: oh, a yeah. lot longer. A lot longer. Um, the cameras kept burning out. Right. That's why you don't get to see. There is a black, on YouTube, there's a black and white video of stuff you don't get to see in the movie. Right. Scorsese says nobody'd ever use cameras like that for that length of time. Uh-huh. You know, but, there's also uh, people who have talked about uh, audio recordings without the, the
1: sweetening. That we're so yeah.
0: used to on the movie. Well, I'll tell you what I do have upstairs. Yeah. I have a bootleg called The Complete Last Waltz. Uh-huh. And you know now, I mean, it, it's all, it, it, John Simon talks about it in his new book because John was there for the mixing of the album. Right. I mean, Robbie is playing notes off, Rick is playing notes off, Garth had a hum on his Lowry organ. The only person who didn't come back for Overdubs was Levon, because he was perfect, right. and he never had a problem. But all of them had to come back and re-record many parts. So John Simon says, watch the film again, John, and watch their mouths really closely, and they'll be just a tiny bit out, because yeah. we couldn't match them sometimes. Right. But there was a lot of re-recording. So um, anyway, that night was uh, sensational, the rehearsals, et cetera. Yeah. Number one, I'm working in Oshawa, and I hear about a concert coming to Massey Hall. Uh, guy. Well, Bob Dylan, and he's bringing with him the Hawks. Nineteen sixty-five. Nineteen sixty-five. Dylan goes electric. Dylan goes electric. Two nights in a row. I write a letter to Massey Hall. Hi, my name is John Donovan. I work at CKLB in Oshawa, and I, I'm media. You know, a letter that I like. I want three tickets. Yeah. People always ask me why do I want three tickets? Because my best friend Bob Gannon wanted a seat between us so he could put his coat down. Thank you, Bob. We had front rows for this show. Bob came out, did the whole acoustics set, and then out come the Hawks, and it was savage. Was unbelievable. These guys just came unfurled. It was one of the last nights with Levon, because Levon left shortly after because he hated, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't stand it. Couldn't yeah. hate, hated the booing. wasn't a big Dylan fan either, really. But one thing, I'm sorry. Uh, when when Levon died, Bob never really speaks about people, even close people, when they pass away. Man, he had a lot to say about Levon. But that night. When they came in, they're doing Just Like Tom Thumb's Blues, and they're doing all of these songs. I must admit, I didn't like It Ain't Me, Babe, electric. I preferred it Yeah. But Garth Hudson on that Lowry of his, and then Dylan sat down at the piano to do Ballad of a Thin Man. And the thing I'll always remember, suddenly this black dude comes out from the same door I used for Wilson Pickett, and he's sitting in a chair. He's going, hey, Bob, Bob. And you see Dylan looking over at him, going, "Who in the hell is this?" He goes, "Hey, Bob." He's getting a Bob's getting pissed. Right. Suddenly, Bob looks at him and goes, "Big smile, little wave." Yeah. It's John Lee Hooker. He's appearing over at the riverboat, <laughs> and he decides to come over between sets. <laughs> he doesn't care how popular. No, but Bob the the music that, that came from those guys, I wish I'd gone both nights like I did on tour seventy four. They were tight. Oh, they. I read something about the band. They said they are the loosest tightest group you'll ever see. They look at each other. They just give themselves a look, and boom. That's why Robbie said in this new book I just read on the making of Blonde on Blonde, he said, I was so intimidated in Nashville because these guys weren't just session musicians. When they left the studio, they went into clubs. They were a band. So Robbie really does like bands better than session guys i guess
1: two interesting notes there is that uh, i was listening to robbie robertson in an interview and he was saying that after that tour was finished bob phoned him up and said yeah that was pretty good we should do it again
0: <laughs> that was pretty funny
1: and uh and the other thing and the other guy that bob dylan talked about a lot after he died was jerry garcia how about that
0: so, yeah, yeah. And, and as we both know jerry did a lot of dylan yeah a lot of dylan yeah. cover songs yeah, yeah yeah great list johnny yeah. All right, I want to move
1: into our second list, which is uh, we'll go ahead and do the best interviews that uh, John ever experienced. You've done so many, and I'll I'll take this opportunity that uh, we haven't even talked about this yet, but when we worked together at CFRB for six years, I mean, some of the ones that really stuck out to me, Eric Idle. Oh, that was great. Which was so wonderful. He had fun with you. Yeah, he did. <laughs> and he was great. He's just a great talker. Yes. And he was wonderful with you. Hold on, I got to redo my notes. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot about that one. Uh, obviously, getting to hang out with Robbie Robertson and Levon Helm. A lot of people are no longer around, you know, which was a really special time. And you brought in so many people from uh, Americana music, folk music, jazz, blues. It was fantastic. So that was just that little five year period. And we had so much fun yeah. bringing those people in. We had a wonderful time. But uh, uh, let's let's go through it. The the list of the interviews that stuck out to you the most.
0: Well, uh, I, I put down uh, Richie Havens because uh, interesting.
1: I get too low with no reason. You say it. The moon, or maybe the
0: season, Hmm. but something is not the same. Richie Havens, I interviewed more. Than any other artist ever, and some I had I'd interviewed two or three times. I interviewed Richie in Toronto about four times. Wonderful man. I yes. And big fingers. Yeah, just <laughs> could. Yeah, he could uh,
1: do that thumb thing
0: over the. Yeah, over like the a capo He used stuff. like a capo, right? Yeah. yeah. Richie, I, I moved to Montreal, and who do I interview? Richie, Richie's in Montreal. Of course, he opens
1: the Woodstock film for people looking for a reference. Yeah, two
0: mm. years later. Two years later, after I met Richie, he would open Woodstock, right. doing Handsome Johnny and so on. Um, did wonderful Beatles covers. Oh, I love, I love Richie Hayman. I really did. I got to well, see him twice. When, when I went to move to Vancouver, we were there in the studio, and he's live. And he's, what would you like me to finish with, John? I said, could you do the long intro? To Here Comes the Sun. And if you haven't heard him do the really long. He goes on for 60 seconds. Mm-hmm. And then he does Here Comes the Sun. And Richie, I got to introduce my son to him. And uh, he was so kind to him. And uh, I, I love the man.
1: I even like that final record. He did some uh, like Pink Floyd covers. And yeah.
0: Sort of thing.
1: yeah. So he was a great guy.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, great one. Richie Havens. What's next? Richie Havens. George Martin and his son, Giles.
1: Now, this happened right after you and I split. It's Too bad uh, I went off and did my thing elsewhere, but uh, uh, you were so excited
0: and this was for the Big Beatles uh, love record I think no no okay. love was no, love was done with just with Giles okay right down at that recording studio under kiss <coughs> <Right>. <coughs> excuse me no this was done at CFRB okay and um, he, he had put out a best of George Martin box All right. and we talked about it and I referred to him the entire time as Sir George, which he liked yesterday. Mm-hmm. All my troubles seem so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. Oh, I believe in yesterday. It's a wonderful interview, but the, my most favorite part of the interview happened to be, I had this bag with me. You see, you see fans do this all the time. Right. And there's Giles sitting there, who you forget how young Giles is. And I said, uh, Sir George, I'd like you to sign an album for you oh all right. so I bring out Off the Beatle Track okay which is a George Martin instrumental album of Beatles hits and he goes oh my god oh my god Giles Giles look at this look at this it's mint I don't have this oh my god and I brought out uh, music to watch girls buy but off the Beatle track, he there's, just...
1: There's the John Donabee research we're talking
0: about, right? Oh, yeah. I yeah. brought that with me. Yeah. I have it hanging in the bedroom upstairs, uh-huh. right next to my Johnny Mercer picture.
1: You see, you know, all the documentaries you see uh, him in, Sir George Martin, he just seems like the most wonderful guy. And he, I, there's something very heartwarming about thinking about the Beatles working with him.
0: I've, I've, got, the like video, I've got that video here of his life, uh-huh. and I've watched it about a half a dozen times, and... and uh, I just love George Martin. And, of course, just because he was with the Beatles. Giles, we got out in the hallway. Giles came up to me and said, excuse me. He said, "Uh, you mentioned in the interview, you interviewed John twice. Yeah. Just, you know, never met them when I was young. Dad wouldn't take me to the studio. Oh, wow. He finally, and he's worked with now McCartney. But he really never got to know the Beatles. He was really young. Sure. Really, really young. Great great one, Sir George Martin. William Least Heat Moon. Okay. He is... uh, of um, First Nations, I guess. Yeah, indigenous, uh, sure. Indigenous. He wrote Blue Highways. And it's a story of a man who gets a letter in the mail one day saying that he's been made redundant. His job is over. Uh, he's a teacher. And he, what's he going to do? So he has about three or $400 left in his bank account. He's divorced. And he um, has a little van called Grey Ghost or something. It's a little F-150 van. And from the upper northeast, he decides to go around the edges of the United States. And his stories, his stories are incredible. Just one quick one. He's in the middle of nowhere. The characters. And this old timer comes up to him. He's got a mule. And he goes, "Uh, hi, how are you doing? And uh, he says, oh, I'm just fine. He says, "Uh, where are you going? He said, I don't know. <laughs> That's good. You can't get lost then, can you? I love that line. And, yeah. and uh, when he was in Selma and he saw what he thought was a time where, you know, everything had worked out well and he saw the, the segregation and the, uh, the problems that they still had, um, he watched a white guy come out of a room, out of a bar, and there was an old black gentleman sitting on a chair and he kicked the chair mm-hmm. and the guy fell over. So after he'd gone away, he went over to help me. He says, oh, no, no, "Don't touch me! Don't, don't, don't help me! Yeah, just and, make it work. And he's like, "I can't believe what just happened to you." He says, "Son, this is progress. <laughs> Ten years ago, he would have shot me." Right. Anyway, I finally got to meet him.
1: And we've, we've talked about so many uh, musicians over the last hour and and it's
0: kind of nice to hear about uh an author yeah yeah, yeah. He, he's a wonderful wonderful man yeah and, and you uh, talked to tom wolf as talked to tom wolf and and, and a few other authors yeah. uh, because i thought i really did think that when we we're going to chat today it was going to be mostly music but i still put him in you know yeah. uh randy newman who uh randy i interviewed uh maybe four or five times my favorite story. And I threw this back at him. Uh, two times back, I guess. And he looked at me and says, you're lying, John. I said, no, I'm not. Yeah. I was backstage. We're getting ready to do a concert at Massey Hall. Different door on the other side. And I opened the, that little door. You've done this. You open the door. And the place is jammed. Uh-huh. And I turn around. I said, Randy, you're, what? you're sold right out. It's jammed. He said, let me look. He opens the door. Closes it, grabs me again by the lapels up here, John. I see two seats empty, and then starts laughing. But um, I—what I a lyricist! Oh, what an incredible musician! Really, yeah, yeah. He, he was just unbelievable, and I got to interview him a few times. And the, the, and, the track I, I love is uh, "I Miss You." Breaks
1: my heart every time I hear it. Um, You're far away.
0: Happy I know It's a little bit late Twenty years or so It's a little bit cold
1: For all those concerned
0: But I'd sell my soul in your soul's a song so poor my heart out. I miss you I miss you I miss
1: you I'm sorry but I do
0: great great so I think that's uh, three or four I mean, do I't know that's four left, right? right one two three four. B.B. King. The King. B.B.'s... riding with B.B. I started interviewing B.B. at uh, Q107. And uh, I emceed shows with B.B. Because of the things he said about me to my son, I never forgot it. Uh, he was just jovial. He was kind. Uh, I loved to talk to him about the Memphis days when he worked at WDIA and he was a disc jockey. And, uh, you know, things such as that. Uh, B.B. was just amazing. Joe Walsh t- told a story recently where he said he went to B.B.
1: right at the end, when just before B.B. died and said, do you have any advice for me? You know. And yeah. all this years in show business and he said you gotta get that money <laughs>
0: <laughs> gotta get that money well that was a whole you know that's a, that's another program altogether yeah. about the 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 african american artists uh i went to see little richard down at uh at the lakefront one day and it was late 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 finally he went on i said to the promoter later what happened he said john he comes from the old school where they got screwed right he said he wanted his money up front i had I hadn't collected all the money from the evening yet, so many of those artists did. They they got taken by the promoters, so a lot of them like to be paid up front.
1: You know, it's a great list, an incredible list, and uh, just adds to the lore of uh, the many years of broadcasting. We didn't talk John about Donovan. my
0: favorite album. We got to get there. Okay.
1: Let's do it. Okay, I all
0: can right. do it fast. I can well, just go no, through. I'm enjoying
1: it. I like I like talking a little bit about these records. All right, John Donaby, uh, the top five list. This is a big one because I think these are the, you know, the interviews, they happen, and then you remember them. The concerts, they happen, and then you remember them. But an album, you have forever. And so this is a big one. It's list. very true. So, yeah. uh, so here we are. Top five albums, according to John Donnelly. an album Tough we ma- men- one.
0: Yeah, an album we mentioned earlier, yeah. Beatlemania. It won't be long, yeah, yeah. first album by the Beatles here, Uh, Meet uh, Meet the Beatles was in the States, and With the Beatles was in England, but we got Beatlemania. When I
1: speak to people my age, I'm a Gen Xer, so Beatles were done when when we came of age to listen to music, and people sort of go, yeah, I really like from, you know, uh, maybe Rubber Soul onwards. Yeah, that's true. I hear a lot of that. From Help onwards, or whatever it might be. But I think for somebody who actually
0: had life without Beatles and then life with it must have just been in a moment you know and currently by the way just because Giles has just put together I want to get the six CD set of the white album (laughs) uh, but I need to have another job in order to afford it which is another topic on who can afford these box sets I guess the next one especially because I just read the book uh, blonde on blonde see
1: you got your brand new Leopard skin pillbox head. Yes, I see you got your brand new leopard skin pillbox head. Well, you must tell me, baby, how your head feels under something like this.
0: first double album, first rock double album, all time yeah. and uh, when you read the book, and you, these Nashville musicians were ready, were, were ready to do songs a whole album maybe in three or four hours Right. when they're recording this album they're getting paid, and they come, and Bob basically or Bob Johnson, the producer, sends them to the basement to play pool, Bob would sit in the studio sometimes seven hours as he's writing a song, he hasn't finished it. Then he calls them up. And Charlie McCoy, the harmonica player and guitar player, said, you know, this guy, the longest record we ever played on was Marty Robbins, El Paso. It's was a little over four minutes. Right. He's doing this thing called Visions of Johanna. It's over seven minutes long. Are we going, is he crazy? Yeah. We didn't know how crazy he was until we got to Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands at 11 minutes. But now that I've read it and I've seen who played on each track and the work and the rewriting and the verses that got rewritten, it's just amazing. And and I'm proud to say thanks to a a band fan from Vancouver, she managed to get for me that I've been looking for for 20 years, a mono version of Blonde on Blonde. Canadian version because it was different than any other. Al Cooper's organ was up there. But it's also, it's it's got a line in there where he flubs. Since then, even on the bootleg albums, they've corrected it. Oh, wow. This is the only one. I got upstairs. I love it. So Blonde on Blonde.
1: And I'll just, uh, it feels like it's a lyrical touchstone moment like you know oh, what yes. he does with his lyrics on that particular record even compared to what he had done prior to
0: that well, well they call bringing it all back home highway 61 revisited and blonde on blonde like the triumvirate i mean those three albums were just incredible but blonde on blonde probably my favorite of the three it's a great one okay all right okay uh moving along the brown album by the band brown album second band. album yeah John Simon produced that, as well as music from Big Pink. Big Pink's first. Big Pink was first, but I actually like the Brown album better, as it's called, because it's got a Brown. I've got uh, Elliot Landy's painting of the band, an original, upstairs. That record, I mean, you know, up on Cripple Creek, and just all the wonderful songs that are on there, and the textures on it. and, and, And John Simon talks about Rag Mama Rag, And uh, how there was going to be no bass in it. So they said, you can play horns, can't you? Yeah. Or you're going to play tuba for the bass lines.
1: It's fascinating. I remember hearing a story. I think we were doing a little documentary at CBC about, you know, the night they drove old Dixie down or one of these songs. And and, uh, the comment was, how is this song not 100 years old? Yeah. You know, and I, I love that about the band because they're just instant classics. They feel like they've been in the songbook then
0: longer than they actually have. Well, it's often talked about that, that during their period at the beginning, everyone else is doing psychedelia. Right. Then there's these guys that look like a bunch of Mennonites or Quakers or something, right? right? And they're in the woods and they look like farmers. Marshmallow overcoat. <laughs> the marshmallow overcoat. <laughs> or as Richard used to say, we're going to call ourselves the crackers, the punk. Jeez. The honkies. personally, <laughs> great,
1: great record though.
0: Yeah, the Rolling Stones. Uh, funny enough, I went to all their concerts at Maple Leaf Gardens.
1: They had—I can't believe they haven't come up in conversation.
0: Finally. Yeah, the Rolling Stones. Uh, I should I, I, for concerts. I should have put the Rolling Stones and Stevie Wonder opening at Maple Leaf Gardens in '72. We were brought. We were doing that show, and so I covered the afternoons, uh, afternoon show, and then the night show. But the Rolling Stones stripped. Because I just like to hear what they did with Keith playing Love in Vain and all of these songs, Wild Horses, but just stripped right down.
1: I'm gonna tell you how it's gonna be You're gonna give your love to me Is that like a, a bit of a later record?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a later record. I mean, there's a lot of albums by the Stones earlier that uh, I could have picked, but I decided to go with that one.
1: Right. So it's, it's nice to hear what strip. they could do, you know, take away some of the dressing. Yeah.
0: Uh, number five, Paul Simon and the album Paul Simon. His first solo album after he and Garfunkel went separate. He's singing Duncan and those types of songs. Couple in the next room, bound to win a prize. They've been going at it all night long. Well, I'm trying to get some sleep, but these motel walls are cheap. Lincoln Duncan is my name, and here's my song. I didn't know what I'd think of Paul Simon by himself, but I fell in love with that album. I think I think I I was crazy for uh, Ryman, There Goes Ryman, Simon. Oh, There Goes Ryman. There's another great one. That's a great it's one. It's a really, really good one. Um,
1: That's got American Tune on it. Something we talked
0: yeah. about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Again, going back to John Simon, I'd forgotten that he produced bookends. Yeah. You know? But uh, I, I want to throw a sixth in, only because it meant a lot to me, was uh, Simon and Garfunkel with Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Thyme. Beautiful. Oh, what a great album, you know?
1: Are you going? so magical. I remember I got to the, the one penny for the 13 records. you remember that promo they used to do? Columbia Oh yeah, House Columbia or whatever, House you know. or whatever, yeah. And yeah. so I thought to myself, I, there's some records I've heard about my whole life that I should probably get and that was one of the ones I've got. And uh, I remember listening just to the heck out of that cassette. Yeah, par- cassette. Parsley Sage.
0: There's an article time. this week that's out that not only has vinyl come back, which you know, yeah, but the cassette is coming back. Mark, I had six garbage bags yeah. filled with cassettes, yeah. and I threw them all out. It's funny. My it's, son almost killed me.
1: In the Beastie Boys book that's just come out, uh, they they talk a little bit about cassettes, and they say you know MP3s get a bad rap before you know because of their fidelity and so on. He says try listening to a cassette that's been like hanging around in your you know dust filled pocket for a couple years. It doesn't sound any better. So you know people can <laughs> love, love cassettes all they want. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, That is a
0: fantastic list. Well, uh, a great there list you go. of records. You're the best. Thank you. But I just want to say, too, uh, and I'm not doing this because you did, that those six years with you were six of the greatest years ever. And people don't really realize this. We talked about it earlier, but whenever my birthday would come up, Mark would get an artist to be with me on the air who I didn't know about. I tried to get him to tell me who it would be, but he just had intuition to know who it would be. So... uh, You know, I want to thank you for that. That was, you know, we don't see each other much anymore, and it's kind of sad. It's that way in life, and and it's too bad.
1: It was a special time, and you're a special guy, and thank you. Thank you, sir. for doing this. So there it is. Great to speak with John Donabee. The man is a legend, and he's a guy who convinced me that this career would be a rewarding one, and so I want to say a big thanks to my old pal, Love John. And you can follow him on Facebook. Just look for John Donamy. He's always posting really cool photos and stories and videos uh, from his many years being uh, involved in the music business. Thank you once again to our sponsors today, Crows Theatre at Carla and Dundas and Red Eye Media. And thanks to you. Thanks for checking out the show. Wonderful to put this remix edition together. You can always keep an eye on us, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'm back on Monday here on Art at the End of the World with a real... Big interview, one of the real big stories in comedy these days. Baroness von Sketch, cast member, creator, and longtime showrunner, Carolyn Taylor. Don't forget, you can hear my program, The Oasis, on the new Classical FM, weekdays 3 to 7 Eastern, 12 to 4 Pacific. Just listen at classicalfm.ca. We're back on Monday. We'll speak to you then and for as long as we can.